Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. Hello, everyone, and welcome to AOA. Thank you for joining us as we turn the calendar to July. Thank you for letting us be part of your day. We always appreciate it. Coming up on today's program, lots of uh, reaction and analysis to yesterday's big USDA crop report on acres and stocks. We'll be talking with Arlen Suderman, Chief Commodities Economist for Stone X. And we will talk with Naomi Bloom, Senior Market Advisor for Total Farm Marketing. Uh, some surprises yesterday, and uh, we will talk about that coming up on today's program, break down those numbers, and uh, get the reaction of our analysts coming up. So uh, that is later in our program. Also today, we're going to talk with Brock Slaybaugh with the National Rural Health Association. Now, we've not talked with with Brock in a while. Uh, we talked with him often uh, last year during the uh, pandemic. I want to get his thoughts on where we're at with the uh, rural health care system in this country now coming out of the pandemic. Uh, we know there's a lot of pressure on a lot of rural hospitals. We're losing a lot of them as they're being closed. And there are some efforts in Washington to try to get some help and some assistance in, in that area to try to save our rural hospitals. We'll talk about all that with Brock Slaybaugh with the National Rural Health Association in a bit. But let's start things off with Will Stafford, Washington representative for CHS. Will, good to talk with you again. I keep asking this question every day, I think, of our Washington guests. What's going on with infrastructure? Can you give us any clarity? Or are we getting any closer to the finish line on this? Yeah, thanks for having me again, Mike. And uh, it's, it's about as clear as mud right now. Um, things are moving on several different paths. Um, recently, the White House and a bipartisan group of 21 senators did come together um, for their own proposal that would uh, cost about a little over a trillion dollars over eight years um, and does, uh, you know, give a lot of good money for roads, bridges and other infrastructure. But it's unclear if that's going to be able to move forward. Um, members of both parties uh, in the House especially have already come out against that bill. And the Democrat Party wants uh, that bill only to be able to pass if it also gets passed with what they're calling their human infrastructure bill that has a lot more progressive priorities involved in it as well. And, of course, uh, the president and the administration trying to, uh, you know, put a full court press on this now, going out to try to explain it a little better because it was confusing from the president's first announcement what he would and would not uh, be supporting and what we did or did not have. So now they're trying to clear all that up. Yeah, that's right. There's been a lot of uh, back and forth flip-flopping um, from the president and from some members of his own party um, about what the pathway forward for this might look like. Um, again, it, it's still tied up, it sounds like, on whether or not it's going to be able to pass by itself or whether it's going to have to be on this two-track proposal that some Democrat, um, Democrat leadership have mentioned, um, along with their, they're calling it a human infrastructure bill that has some of those more progressive priorities that they laid out in the original Biden infrastructure plan um, like child care and, and things like that. So we continue to wait. Meanwhile, the 
Growing Climate Solutions Act passed uh, overwhelmingly in the Senate. What's its prospects in the House? Yeah, that's right. It had a big week in the Senate last week, passed uh, by a vote of 92 to 8, which is uh, certainly a strong vote by all means and um, and not something that, that we see every day in this um, partisan climate. Uh, in the House, it's a little bit unclear what the path forward is going to be. There has been a companion bill introduced um, on the House side by Representative Stanberger from Virginia and Representative Bacon from um, Nebraska. Uh, with that being said, the, the House Ag Committee Chairman, uh, David Scott from Georgia, is keeping his cards close to his vest right now on how this might move forward. Um, it's possible that more progressive members of the Democrat Party uh, could look at this bill as one of the only chances to pass some of their uh, more progressive-leaning um, climate change proposals, um, which could obviously have an adverse effect on the Republican support of the bill um, if those are added on the House side. So it's going to be uh, it's going to have some potholes that it's going to have to work around um, to get cleanly through the House side and, and pass something with as strong bar- as strong bipartisan support as it did in the Senate. Um, but this bill still does have a pathway forward. Meanwhile, spending bills are making their way through the uh, political process. The House Appropriations Committee approved a fiscal 2022 funding bill for the Ag Department, for the Food and Drug Administration, and Commodity Futures Trading Commission. And that would be a boost of spending by more than 10%. And included in those increases would be big amounts for ag research and climate change related programs. So uh, is this on track to make it through, you think? You know, the appropriations process has been pretty convoluted here for uh, for over a decade. Um, things have not been working in, in what we call regular order uh, here in D.C., which is that normal appropriations process. So, uh, you know, I, I think that it's good that the House move forward, but I still think it would have an uphill battle to climb um, passing a similar appropriations bill through the Senate. Uh, with that being said, you know, you never know how this might look, but um, I, I think that odds are we'll be looking at a similar uh, path forward for budget spending than we've seen in the last that we've seen in the last decade or so um, with a large spending package being passed at the end of the year. Will, we're going into the Fourth of July weekend. Um, so these are there are a lot of big items there on the table. What do you see Congress really focusing on and being able to get done this summer? Yeah, um, the fourth of the the push after the Fourth of July and before they start their August recess um, is always pretty hectic up in Congress um, with them trying to get as much as they can before they go home uh, for the summer in August back to their districts. Um, I do think transportation and infrastructure is going to play um, the largest role up there. Uh, the the Democrat leadership has still indicated that that they want to get something done by the end of July on infrastructure. I think that's a pretty tall order right now with such an unclear pathway forward. But I think that's going to dominate most of the discussion that we hear about up in Congress. You know, there seems to be a consensus. We need something done on infrastructure, but we've had these attempts in the past. We've heard about shovel-ready jobs and things like that, and, and we don't seem to see much come from all that. you think this time could be different? You know, it, it's it's too hard to tell right now. It, like you said, it's something that both sides of the aisle um, agree that something needs to be done on, but it's a matter of 
uh, how that actually gets done and what uh, defines getting something done as well. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, the House has moved forward with their own surface transportation package in the meantime. Um, We could see that playing uh, kind of a side role to the the larger infrastructure package that the White House has talked about. But I still think that right now it's an uphill climb for any infrastructure package to pass before the summer's over. All right, Will, thank you for the update. Have a good holiday weekend. You too. Thanks for having me, Mike. Take care. Will Stafford, Washington representative for CHS. Up next, the rural health care system. Where does it stand as we come out of the pandemic? And what about the challenges facing rural hospitals? We'll talk with Brock Slayball with the National Rural Health Association next on AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. Every Tuesday, we'll be sitting around the table, sponsored by CHS. Join us and learn how CHS creates the vital connections that empower agriculture, helping farmers and ranchers like you succeed. We'll hear from different voices from throughout the cooperative system, sharing stories about how good things happen when people work together. Join us around the table every Tuesday or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. Recently on Adams on Agriculture, Ethan Lane, Vice President, Government Affairs for the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. What do you think about this grant program? Well, this is great news. It's always cool to see something that we've engaged on here in Washington and worked on come to fruition and start to bear fruit for our producers around the country. At the height of COVID last year, there was a lot of conversation about processing capacity and how we could empower some of these smaller plants around the country. Yeah, I think that's the key thing here, the key takeaway. You have said that this grant money will help ensure that we're not just making big plants bigger, but expanding capacity in those smaller independent facilities. That's the name of the game. Everything we're working on back here right now is focused on delivering those resources to the ground. At the margins that we're all familiar with, with the big four, if they want to add more capacity, they've got the checkbook to do it. We want to empower other market participants, and and we think that's where the federal government can help through some of these programs, and that's where we're putting our focus. For the information important to rural America, join us on Adams on Agriculture. Adams on Agriculture, conversations with policymakers, the movers and shakers in the ag industry, the pros and cons of issues important to you, cutting through the spin to get to the heart of the topic and giving you the information you need to know. Every weekday, Mike Adams brings you a guest important to the ag industry. It's quite simply information farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Adams on Agriculture. I'll take dig a little, learn a lot for 30 bushels. Soft and crumbly. Tom. How does healthy soil feel to the touch? Correct. Dig a little for 40 bushels. Sweet and earthy. Tom. What does healthy soil smell like? Yes, go again. Dig a little for 50 bushels. Dark, porous, and alive. Tom. What does healthy soil look like? You win. Understanding the basics and benefits of healthy soil can make your farm a winner, too, through lower input costs, better yields, and drought protection, which can lead to a healthier bottom line for your business. Contact your local Natural Resources Conservation Service office today to find out how you can unlock the secrets in your soil. 
This message brought to you by USDA's Natural Resources Conservation Service and this radio station. You're listening to AOA Adams on Agriculture. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know on AOA. Now, back to Mike Adams. Last year, we talked quite a bit with Brock Slaybaugh, a senior vice president with the National Rural Health Association, as the rural healthcare system was dealing with the, the pandemic. Well, while we're still dealing with COVID, certainly not to the extent we were last year, kind of want to get an update on where the system is at and how it handled things. Brock Slayball joins us now. Brock, thanks for being with us. Um, here we are now, July 2021. You look back, how did the rural health care system uh, hold up during the pandemic? Well, Mike, it's great to be on your show today, and I'll say that we held up quite well uh, uh, overall. Uh, obviously, we had some challenges out there, uh, certainly as we began the pandemic with uh, PPE, personal protective equipment. Uh, we have uh, staffing shortages and all kinds of issues, but we're well past that, and I think that with the advent of the vaccine and, and um, mitigation strategies, uh, we see a nice uh, curtailing of the virus now in, in rural communities in particular, although we do have some hot spots out there. And we need to make sure that uh, we, we note those and, and deal with that uh, as we go forward. In about all aspects of our lives, we're seeing some things come back as they were before the pandemic. Other things still uh, we're kind of waiting to see, and some things we kind of think maybe won't come back or be ever again be like they were completely. What about with rural health care uh, facilities? What is back? What is changing? What might not be the same? Well, uh, Mike, it's really a, a mixed bag. Uh, we had a lot of resources that were passed by Congress under the Trump administration uh, last year, the CARES Act in particular, uh, it afforded uh, close to $10 billion for rural providers to withstand the, 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 the problems that they were facing. Um, we're now in the process of uh, working through the administration of those dollars, and uh, I think that has supported significantly the rural hospitals uh, and clinics in their operations to the point where we've only had one closure uh, in the state of Kansas uh, for rural hospitals so far uh, six months into 2021. But overall, the trend of losing rural hospitals that was going on before the pandemic, is that continuing? Well, we're afraid that uh, much like a sugar high after drinking uh, a cola, uh, that that once this money works through the system uh, that was used uh, for the COVID relief, uh, we may see a a restoration of some significant uh, financial troubles and perhaps more closures going into the future. So we're watching for that. We're talking with Congress and and the administration, making sure we can uh, fix those before they happen. Yeah, what is proposed out there that would help the health care system long term? Well, we have several uh, uh, activities in in process right now. First of all, another uh, round of uh, uh, provider relief funding. Uh, Senator Manchin and uh, others from West Virginia have proposed. Uh, we also have uh, the passage of the Rural Emergency Hospital, which was uh, uh, sponsored by Senator Grassley from Iowa. And uh, this Rural Emergency Hospital is a new provider type that could actually be an alternative to 
the full-service acute care hospitals that you think of when you think of hospitals in rural areas. So that's a new provider type. We're looking forward to uh, seeing how that might play out in, uh, as it gets implemented in 2023, Mike. We're talking with Brock Slaybaugh with the National Rural Health Association. Brock, we've seen uh, not only closures, but we've also seen consolidations and some mergers and things like that within the industry. Do you think we'll see more of that? Uh, it's very possible, especially as we look at the rural emergency hospital and how that fits into uh, systems and their evaluation of their rural partners. Uh, but yeah, mergers and acquisitions, uh, I think uh, during the pandemic have obviously slowed a, a good deal because of attention being placed on uh, dealing with uh, uh, that pandemic. But uh, but we may see some activity in that going forward, more affiliations and alignment to achieve greater efficiencies and to provide better continuum of care for patients, uh, you know, across uh, across the, the across geography. We saw workers being laid off as uh, elective uh, procedures were being uh, postponed, delayed because of the pandemic. As that comes back, are those workers all coming back or not? Well, yes, Mike. Uh, I think that what we're seeing is that because of uh, uh, we have some severe worker shortages right now. Uh, we due to burnout, people have left uh, the field of uh, their the, left their work. Uh, we're seeing some shortages in personnel now in uh, rural areas for uh, uh, like for housekeeping and dietary and other support staff. Um, so I think we're seeing actually some tightening of job markets, uh, ironically. Um, and uh, more help one at times out there, which may be good news for struggling rural economies. Let's talk about some of those really remote rural areas, the the hardest to serve uh, because of a number situation, fewer people but still in need of, of health care. What's being done to address that issue? Well, I think that uh, we're looking at trying to fortify emergency medical services. We're talking with Congress, who's really starting to develop some concern about that, uh, how we can uh, bolster those services in these remote areas, because those are going to be critical services. That rural emergency hospital that I talked about a little bit ago could be a solution for, for very uh, uh, frontier-type populations. Um, and then we're looking at uh, basically fortifying workforce uh, um programs, uh, National Health Service Corps, uh, looking at graduate medical education, making it more conducive for uh, workforce to want to locate in some of these more rural and very, very rural and frontier areas of our country. In the rural healthcare system itself, what lessons will you say were learned during uh, last year that may be helpful moving forward to address uh, other emergencies that could be coming down the line? Oh, that's a great question, Mike. Um, I would say that uh, one of the things that I'm learning is the resiliency that rural communities have demonstrated as part of uh, their uh, get-up-and-go attitude. Um, I've seen more in, um, innovation and ingenuity and just sheer creativity around how we organize ourselves to take care of our people. And um, I've been extremely proud looking all over the country at the work that many of uh, rural, all rural providers have done during this pandemic and in rising to the challenge. So that resiliency piece is the first thing I would uh, emphasize. Uh, the second is the dependency that we have on our rural facilities. Um, 
we spent a long time historically decreasing the number of hospital beds because of increasing technologies and, and medicine. Uh, but when we have a lot of sick patients with a very severe respiratory disease, we need hospital beds. Uh, and we needed a lot of them during the height of this pandemic. So the value of our rural facilities isn't just during the times we don't need them. The value is when we actually really need them and we need to step up. So I think that we saw the, uh, the, the, the con- contribution that they've made during this pandemic in, in that area. So those are the two things that I would say that I've learned the most. And, and we're using that in our conversations with Congress to help uh, fortify this going forward. And isn't that a huge challenge, though, Brock, to to have basically what you would need during the peak of a crisis like we just went through, but how do you afford to keep all of that at times when you don't need all that, uh, whether it be bed space or workers or whatever it may be? Uh, How do you you have both? Well, that's part of the challenge, uh, and we have to figure out uh, a way that we can use public-private partnerships to maintain this what i consider to be a utility um obviously we pay uh locally and federally for fire support police support uh water services telecommunications um health care uh, needs to be more front and center as a part of the infrastructure that's necessary to keep a rural economy going um, goodness gracious the folks listening to this program today um, we supply the all of the food and energy resources that this country needs to work uh, and to operate, and that is an important factor that we need to uh, calculate into our gov- into our thinking about how we fund these services going forward. I guess the question I would be is, how do we not have these services? And I guess mm-hmm. that's really the question that I would ask. All right, Brock, as always, thank you for uh, keeping us up to date on the, the challenges and issues with the rural health care system. And, uh, and uh, we look forward to uh, moving out of this pandemic completely. And uh, as you said, some lessons learned to help us in the future. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Mike. Great to be with you. Take care. Brock Slaybaugh, Senior Vice President with the National Rural Health Association. All right. Yesterday, big report day, the much anticipated June 30th report. As uh, USDA says, farmers are expected to plant more corn and soybeans and wheat acres than last year, but not as much as some were expecting. Markets reacted to that. We'll talk about that and more from yesterday's report with Arlen Suderman, Chief Commodities Economist with StoneX. That's coming up next. Stay with us. You are listening to AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. I'm Naheem Hines, professional football player for the Indianapolis Colts. Becoming a running back was no easy task for me, but it's nothing compared to what my amazing mom faces every day. My mom was diagnosed with muscular dystrophy when I was 14 years old, yet she's always there for me, every step of the way, despite our own battles. And the Muscular Dystrophy Association is there for my mom. At their 150 care centers across the U.S., MDA is the leading organization in research and care for kids and adults with muscular dystrophy, ALS, and related neuromuscular diseases. Their research is helping find cures and save lives. 
Watching my mom go through her daily struggles and the care she receives from MDA has made me determined to help find a cure for neuromuscular disease. That is why I support MDA, and that's why I'm so grateful to others who do too. Join me and learn more at helpmda.org today. You're listening to AOA. I'm Kirsten Rawl. Gray markets are stronger with row crops leading the way as the buying continues in the new month and new quarter following the bullish USDA reports on Wednesday. On the Board of Trade September corn, trading 16 and three quarters higher at 616, the December contract up 12 and a fraction at 601 and a fraction. For soybeans, the November contract up 14 and a half cent at 1413 and a half cent. The August contract up 22 and three quarters at 1452 and a half cent. For wheat, Chicago wheat September up nine cents at six eighty-eight and a half cent. Kansas City wheat September up four at six sixty-three and three quarters. Minneapolis spring wheat September up six cents at eight fifty-five and three quarters. The July contract up forty-eight and three quarters at eight sixty-eight and three quarters. In cash cattle country, it's slow to start this morning following yesterday's generally moderate movement. Asking prices are around one hundred and twenty-two dollars plus in the south and one hundred and ninety-nine dollars in the north. It is possible that we. May may see a little more business take place through the end of the day. Beef cutouts are expected to be lower with light to moderate box movement. The large change in dynamics for the grain market will have an influence on the livestock complex. Feedlots may be more willing to move cattle as quickly as possible, leaving packers less willing to bid higher. Hogs are balancing market fundamentals and technical trading. August live cattle down 17 at 122.55. October down 7 at 128.07. For feeders, the August contract down 70 at 153.92. September down 65 at 156.77 in lean hogs a July contract a dollar 67 higher at 109.15 August a dollar 97 higher at 105.22 in the outside markets the Dow is up 77 points the Nasdaq composite up 12 the S&P 500 up 13 crude oil in New York August up two dollars and 28 cents at 75.75 per barrel the U.S. dollar index is trending lower you're listening to AOA I'm Kirsten Rawl. 54. So, basically, it's too late to start saving for retirement, right? Not right. Starting to save, even in your 50s, can really make a difference. Well, right now, saving seems hard to wrap my head around. Plus, with the way this year's been going... <laughs> hey, listen, it's okay. You still got this. Just go to aceyourretirement.org. It's an online tool from AARP that can help you get your retirement savings on track no matter your age. It's free and only takes about three minutes. I like three minutes. Yeah. At aceyourretirement.org, you'll chat with Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach. Just answer a few questions and you'll get a personalized plan and tips to help boost your retirement savings. Tips that are easy to understand and tailored to your lifestyle. I like that too. Plus, it's sponsored by AARP, so you know they got your back. Just head to aceyourretirement.org and make your plan to start saving for retirement. Thanks. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council. Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know on AOA. Now, back to Mike Adams. So we now have that much-anticipated June 30th USDA report looking at both acres and stocks. Farmers are expected to plant more corn and soybeans this year, but 
not as much of an increase as many had expected. The corn number, 92.7 million acres. Soybean acres number at uh, 87.6 million. Let's talk with Arlen Suderman, Chief Commodities Economist for Stone X. Arlen, were you surprised? I was surprised. Uh, this was a year when we had plenty of incentive to uh, plant fence row to fence row. We expected that we would push combined corn and soybean acreage closer to 183, maybe even 184 million acres, uh, which would be a new high. But yet we stuck at 180.2 million for the two combined. Corn acres came in just pretty much almost exactly what I expected all the way back to last March. I stuck with that estimate for the June uh, report. But the soybeans was really a surprise. It didn't even grow from the March estimate. It shrank a little bit from the March estimate. Some of that probably because of the late development of the wheat crop in the southern Midwest and some of the double cropping areas. Um, but uh, frankly, when you look at the numbers in the breakdown state by state from USDA, some of the numbers are a little mystifying uh, on where they come up with, but they are the numbers they are. This is what we will trade going forward uh, until we see certified acreage from USDA that might change things. This is what we're going to go through the summer with. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, the, the f actual number might change. But going off of this number, and I've seen this question posed, I think it's a good question. If If this year... With prices as they were at planting time, if this year we didn't see an explosion in soybean acres, what would it take? Yeah, I think that's a le legitimate question to ask. Uh, it, it defies logic a little bit because farmers did have the incentive to do it. Uh, you can't ask for much more incentive, and that incentive was coming during planting season uh, as well. So that was plenty of opportunity. It was a relatively dry planting time for them to go in granted maybe too dry in the northern plains, um, but even there, North Dakota was an interesting uh, scenario where we saw uh, USDA report an increase from the March report for corn acres, soybean acres, and wheat acres at a time when they were frankly too dry, and that's where we expected maybe that we wouldn't see some acres planted, um, but they increased acreage of all three following the March report. All right, so acres, that's one thing. But with the weather challenges we've had throughout the, this growing season so far, what are your thoughts on production, actual yield? Well, that's what the total focus becomes now. Yes, these numbers will be put into the balance sheets on July 12th, and so we'll see adjustments there. But it's really going to come down to weather now over the next 30 to 60 days. And we're set up with a have and have nots in, across the, uh, the major crop growing areas. Uh, southern and eastern areas have good moisture, a few dry pockets for most part good moisture, some places excessive moisture where we're going to see some denitrification, some, some problems with some yellow corn, etc. It's going to be problems some flooded out fields, um, but overall going to expect some above trend yields in the southern and eastern part of the belt. Northwestern areas, yes, we have some spots where the crops still look good where they happen to get some convective storms, uh, but overall the region sees some very dry soils. We have not seen the, the drought breaking relief that we need. The growing season has to go basically perfect from here on out with, and depending on temperatures over the period, an inch and a half to two inches of rain per week over the next eight to ten weeks, and the outlook doesn't look like that's going to happen. So we're set up for below trend yields in that area. So how do the two balance out? 
Iowa's going to be kind of the dividing line. Which way do the rains from this point forward and the heat, how much of Iowa do they claim or not claim? That's going to pivot how much of an influence goes toward the above trend to below trend. But nonetheless, we're still probably leaning more toward the below trend. My corn model right now is at 176.4 bushels per acre, trending lower kind of on a weekly basis. I like that. I think that's a good snapshot. I know people in the northwestern belt are saying, you're way too high. People in the east are saying, you're way too low. It's backyarditis type of a thing. But when you look at the belt as a whole and the snapshot, assuming normal weather, which I know is, is a risky thing to do, I think that's a good take right now. For soybeans, it's 50.3 bushels per acre. But there again, soybeans can do a lot in, in August as long as you have the basic plant there. Um, but uh, the forecast is what's concerning. We're going to warm up and dry out uh, the, North, the North Dakota, South Dakota, parts of Minnesota in the days ahead, starting probably Saturday, Sunday, somewhere in there. Uh, and we're going to go to hot period. That heat's going to ebb and flow. It's not going to be maybe as intense as what it's been in the Pacific Northwest. But it's going to make things tough. We have some opportunities for some convective storms um, to develop in this dry area of the belt in the weeks ahead. Um, but the, those are the type where you're lucky if you get them. A few miles away, you don't get anything. So it's not going to solve our national problem of production. So if we get a national average corn yield below 174, we have to pick up the pace of rationing. I might mention, I'm going to break it here, we just got our Brazil team's production estimate for corn in, and uh, we're just ready to go public with it now. 87.93 million metric tons total corn production. That's below their estimate of 89.68 million metric tons last month. And that doesn't include all of the frost damage from this week either. So a short crop in Brazil means more export business in the new marketing year for us. It makes it essential that we get at least 174 to 175 bushel yield. And that risk is, is very great right now. Breaking news here on AOA. We like that. Thank you. We're talking with Arlen Suderman with StoneX. All right, Arlen, let's look at the stocks numbers. USDA estimating corn stocks as of June 1 at 4.11 billion bushels. Soybean stocks estimated at 766 million bushels. What's your takeaway from those numbers? Well, it means that while well, feed usage is in decline, it's not declining as much as what we anticipated. It means that we are feeding more feed, more wheat than we thought, but we're not chewing into the corn feeding quite as much as expected. I do expect that the September 30th report is going to show more wheat feeding at the expense of corn. But anyway, this is a good number for the July 12th WASDE report, supporting the feed usage for both wheat and corn, even with the high prices that we have. On the soybeans, it means that USDA will probably push the residual use estimate up a little bit more. They had pulled it back because of tightness of supplies. Uh, that'll offset what I think we're going to see a, a little bit of erosion of the export side of things. We're starting to see shipments starting to slow down, sales really slowing down. And, and really starting to see that, I should point out, particularly for corn, where we're seeing congestion at the ports due to COVID there, the Delta variant of COVID at the ports um, in the southern part of China. That's 
creating congestion, slowing down shipments from the U.S. to China. I think we're going to see some of those sales for this year rolled into next year as a result. Even this morning's weekly report had a couple cargoes um, that were that were canceled, and we'll probably see a little bit more of that going forward. Overall, the demand picture is pretty good, and the stock's numbers support that. All right, so we have these numbers. The markets will work off of these numbers now. We saw prices jump after the report came out. Uh, do prices stay, uh, you think the, we'll see it keep going up, or we see the markets react to those uh, weekly crop ratings reports? I, I think they're going to, uh, we had an initial, let me put it this way, we saw the speculative funds really liquidate their long positions over the past month. So they had a lot of buying capacity. They're in the process of rebuilding those positions. The U.S. farmer has largely sold what he's willing to sell. We are seeing some Brazilians selling on this where the farmers want to do some catch-up selling. But I think we're going to see this market well supported in here to get back up near where we were or whatever. And then it's going to be daily weather models, especially now as we come out of the 4th of July holiday weekend. It's going to be those daily weather models. And there's still a lot of buying power left in the funds uh, that can take us higher if those models are not cooperative. All right. So you mentioned earlier, when we look at the weather right now, haves and have-nots. And, and so as this plays out, I guess the question is, do the haves have enough of a crop to over uh, overcome the loss of the have-nots, right, where the production is going to be down? Yeah. Yesterday's numbers mean we have to ration demand for soybeans over the coming year, even if we don't get a short crop this year. Um, so on corn, we're very borderline of having to do that, and with soybeans, we, we need to. So things are tight. If you're an end user, you have to be worried more about higher prices. If you're a producer, you're feeling pretty smug right now, uh, not too worried about the market breaking on you, but uh, you're hoping for higher prices for additional pricing opportunities. All right, Arlen, very interesting report. As I said, much anticipated and uh, had, its, uh, had its own fireworks, its own surprises. So we'll see where we go from here. Thanks, as always, for the perspective. Appreciate it. Always a pleasure, Mike. Arlen Suderman, Chief Commodities Economist for StoneX. For sure, a lot of reaction to uh, yesterday's numbers and a lot more to dig through here and get reaction to. Coming up next, we will talk with Naomi Bloom, Senior Market Advisor for Total Farm Marketing. What were her takeaways from the report? What is she most focused on? What does she think the markets will be most focused on as we move on now past the 4th of July? Lots to talk about with these markets and with that report. Stay with us. You're listening to AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. I'll take dig a little, learn a lot for 30 bushels. Soft and crumbly. Tom. How does healthy soil feel to the touch? Correct. Dig a little for 40 bushels. Sweet and earthy. Tom. What does healthy soil smell like? Yes, go again. Dig a little for 50 bushels. Dark, porous, and alive. Tom. What does healthy soil look like? You win. 
Understanding the basics and benefits of healthy soil can make your farm a winner too through lower input costs, better yields, and drought protection, which can lead to a healthier bottom line for your business. Contact your local Natural Resources Conservation Service office today to find out how you can unlock the secrets in your soil. This message brought to you by USDA's Natural Resources Conservation Service and this radio station. 54. So, basically, it's too late to start saving for retirement, right? Not right. Starting to save, even in your 50s, can really make a difference. Well, right now, saving seems hard to wrap my head around. Plus, with the way this year's been going... (laughs) Hey, listen. It's okay. You still got this. Just go to aceyourretirement.org. It's an online tool from AARP that can help you get your retirement savings on track no matter your age. It's free and only takes about three minutes. I like three minutes. Yeah. At aceyourretirement.org, you'll chat with Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach. Just answer a few questions and you'll get a personalized plan and tips to help boost your retirement savings. Tips that are easy to understand and tailored to your lifestyle. I like that too. Plus, it's sponsored by AARP, so you know they got your back. Just head to aceyourretirement.org and make your plan to start saving for retirement. Thanks. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council. Blood clots can happen to anyone. Up to 900,000 people in the United States are affected by blood clots each year, and 100,000 die from them. Blood clots don't discriminate. You or a loved one could be at risk right now. The good news is blood clots can be prevented. Knowing the risks and symptoms are key. On average, one person in the United States dies of a blood clot every six minutes. Don't let that be you or someone you know. Learn more at stoptheclot.org slash spread the word. A gentle breeze blows across your face as you take a refreshing sip of water, appreciating the stillness of another morning fishing on the lake. The distant gurgle of a stream reminds you of days spent playing in the creek, the cool, clear water rushing between your toes. You love this time with nature, the feeling of putting everything on hold to connect with the world around you. Now, imagine it's all gone. No fish, no lake, no water. One of life's most vital resources, irreplaceably depleted. Time is running out to protect fresh water, and without our love, it can and will disappear. It's our choice. Love it or lose it. Help protect our fresh water. Visit World Wildlife Fund at wwf.org love. Recently on Adams on Agriculture, president of the National Corn Growers Association, John Linder. How do you feel about how the Biden administration is dealing with the biofuels industry? Do you think they're fully supportive? Uh, And again, the statement we just heard from uh, Jarrett Renshaw with Reuters that the Biden administration is not a fan of liquid fuels. How do you feel about that? I'd have to say that perspective would disappoint me. I believe that they are listening to us and they want to find a path forward. And, you know, corn ethanol checks so many boxes. I think it's a great story. And I think the opportunity to recognize that it fully fits the climate strategy today and it will only get better going forward. And so that's our our effort of advocation for our corn farmers. It's so critical to the demand base for corn, right? And the farmers really need us to help provide that stability, that certainty, so the next generation has a place in agriculture as they desire. For the information important to rural America, join us on Adams on Agriculture. 
Adams on Agriculture prides itself on bringing top leaders in the egg industry right to your radio speakers. AOA wants to continue that conversation right to your fingertips. Follow AOA on Twitter at AOA underscore talk show and Mike Adams himself at the handle Mike Adams Egg. You will receive real-time highlights of the show and keep up with which convention or industry meeting AOA is attending. That's AOA underscore talk show and Mike Adams Egg. We hope to see you online. You're listening to AOA Adams on Agriculture. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know on AOA. Now, back to Mike Adams. Let's get more reaction to the big USDA June 30th report. Naomi Bloom, Senior Market Advisor for Total Farm Marketing, joins us. So, Naomi, the big story, big question coming in, how high would the USDA raise acres? And while they raised them, not as much as many had expected. Were you surprised? I wasn't surprised because I did some historical research which uh, compared what the March report would do for acres going then comparing it to the June report. And historically, there was usually like a 1 to 1.5 million acre increase. So the industry was really trying to suggest these dramatically larger numbers. Uh, so the numbers that came out were actually a little bit more in line with historical expectations. So the biggest bottom line, though, from the whole takeaway, there was no change for soybean acres from the March report to this June report. And that was very surprising to me. So that soybean story continues to be the friendliest in this whole marketplace and also just continues to say that we cannot have any weather issues going forward, period, for you know corn or soybeans, quite frankly. And isn't that question going to be asked for some time? Looking back on this year, when you look at uh, planting time and the, the prices, why didn't we have more soybean acres planted? Well, I think a lot of that has to do with um, at fall when producers were planning their crop year, they put on, you know, they did all their fall field work for expectations of what they were going to be doing for planting in the spring. And most people at the time were sticking with a regular rotation because at that time when they were doing their fall field work, prices were, you know, better they had been, but not as dramatically higher as they were come spring. And so the inputs in spring had already increased dramatically for prices, and so people, I think, stuck with their regular rotations rather than this dramatic increase to corn price um, and, and to corn acres instead. All right, wheat acres estimated at 46.7 million, up 5%. Cotton acres, 11.7 million, down 3% from last year. Any surprises there? Uh, a little bit of what industry was focusing on with the wheat acres, the increase in acres, was a little bit surprising. You know, it was above the average estimate, but within the range. Um, but if you look at the big picture, the all-wheat planted area is the fourth lowest all-wheat planted acres on record since we began in 1919. Um, you know, the spring wheat um, acres coming in at 11.6. That's down 5% from last year, so that's significant. It continues to add fire to the bullish Minneapolis wheat story, especially with the crop conditions suffering so much under drought. And then keeping an eye on the wheat crop over in Washington State, you know, there's some, there's some, I think, a potential bigger wheat story that's going to be coming for some of those specific wheat markets. All right, stocks numbers, 
as we knew going in, it shows a tight uh, situation, maybe even tighter than maybe some had thought. Definitely a tight situation, without question. And here's the other part that I think about. You know, the September quarterly stocks report now should show then even tighter overall. When I was talking with clients over the past three to four weeks, you know, I usually have the conversation, okay, what do you got for old crop sales? What do you got for your new crop sales? And I was floored with the amount of people who said they had very, very, very little corn left. And these are folks who normally would have a quarter of their crop yet or a third of their crop yet this time of year waiting for some kind of a summer rally to unload the rest of it. And they were already almost gone. So I had that hunch that the quarterly stocks numbers were going to be tight and maybe even a little tighter than suggested. And the on-farm numbers were down dramatically from years ago levels. Um, and so what I've been hearing now in the industry is that end users do have some of that grain in their facilities, and they're going to be good to go until maybe about middle of August or late August. But now you're going to have that month of September where you can see a really interesting basis scramble um, to try to get the last of the remaining old crop in before the new crop is actually harvested. So that's going to be something to watch end of August heading into September. So do we see markets this summer nervous, uh, concerned about production with too much rain in places, too little rain in other places? We're just now going into the, the heat of summer. Uh, so does that make the markets, the traders uneasy? It's going to be very nerve-wracking over the next two to three weeks, and then again in August. So seasonally, a lot of times prices for grains will push higher into the first week of July, and then we're whatever the weather forecast is then as we head into pollination, that's kind of how we trade. So now when we have the situation with ending stocks so tight and acres not as high as what trade was anticipating, any high heat in the forecast when we come back from the three-day holiday weekend is going to be traded next week. And then right off the bat, on the 12th, Monday the 12th, we've got another USDA report. Now, normally, the market will kind of find a summer peak that first week of July and right into that July USDA report. 2012 was the exception when the drought, of course, took over and markets rallied into August. So be aware how next week might be the best opportunity for sales yet and your final one if the weather forecast turns to perfect, but if the weather forecast turns into hot and horrible or there's a lot of doubt about having a record crop, watch out. We could just be, again, getting ready for one more leg higher. I don't know. I, I, I think the odds of the perfect forecast being slim. <laughs> I have a tendency to agree with you. I have a tendency to agree with that. You know, it has been so dry in the Dakotas. And, and, you know, you would think that when you get a foot of rain in Illinois, that can't be great for the crop either. So it's going to be interesting how the trade wants to figure this out. I think you can say a record yield is out of the question at this time. But how far below trend line we are is a big question mark for the market right now. So we got some answers yesterday, but there, now we seem to have even more questions. It does seem that way, right? You know, because then the other part to it is that we'll have, you know, higher prices, and so that'll curb demand in a sense. Um, so that'll be something to be watching out for in the coming months. And then we haven't heard much out of China lately as far as the wet weather that they've been having and how their crop conditions are doing. And then we'll be keeping an eye on Russia also, and if there's any hot and dry weather, that affects wheat also. A lot to watch, and we'll uh, stay in touch with you, Naomi, to help us watch it. Thank you very much. Thank you. 
Take care. Naomi Bloom, Senior Market Advisor for Total Farm Marketing. That wraps it up for today. Thank you for joining us. Hope you'll be with us again tomorrow right here on AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world.